I was reading recently from a book by an author named Joshua Harris in a title called Dug Down Deep. And in this particular work, Joshua was describing a conversation that he had with a college student. Uh, It was an unusual conversation because this particular young woman was confessing to Joshua her amazement at discovering that the stars were not just pinpricks of light in the upper atmosphere of Earth. Because this young woman seemed quite intelligent in virtually every other respect, Joshua was puzzled by this particular confession she was making. And and he said, well, what did you think they were before? And she said, I thought they were, you know, sort of just right up there, just above us. Harris goes on to say in his book that if you were to ask me why it matters that we study the doctrine of God, the attributes, the character and nature of God, I would say it is for the same reason that it's worth knowing that the stars are not just tiny pinpricks above our heads. When we know the truth about God, writes Harris, it fills us with wonder. When we understand who God is, it cannot help but fill us with wonder. Harris goes on to write, if we fail to understand God's true character, we'll never be amazed by him. We'll never feel small as we stare up at him. We'll never worship him as we ought to. We will never run to him for refuge or realize the great love that he's shown us in the measureless distance that he has bridged to come and rescue us from our sins. Long ago, David of Israel found himself similarly enraptured with a sense of wonder before God. And if there's one thing that we see so often as we read our way through the Psalms, it is David's amazement before the wonder of God. And in Psalm 145, David declares these words, I will exalt you, my God, the King. Now that's saying something. Because at this particular moment, David is himself one of the most famous regents, the great sovereigns of the ancient world. He's ruling over one of the great empires of the ancient world as he writes these words. And yet he says, I will praise your name, God, forever and ever. He who is constantly being uh, adored and, and applauded by his people and by his cabinet is clear on the fact that it is God who is the ultimate king. And the one who is worth praise forever and ever. Every day, he says, I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works, says David. It's not just people out there that need to think about this stuff. I need to be continually ambushed and surprised and overwhelmed by the wonder of who you are, God, is what David is saying here. They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your good deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing 
of your righteousness. What I want to ask you today is, do you live with a sense of humble wonder before God's greatness, anything like this? Does the thought of who God is and what God has done choke you up in any way? Do you find yourself meditating on God's majesty or speaking to other people as you go about during your week of all that God has done, of his goodness and his glory, does the thought of of coming shortly to this table of communion weaken your knees with a sense of reverent awe before the kind of God who would pour out his life's blood, give of his very substance for mere human beings. In other words, does the greatness of God inspire in you that genuine awe where worship and praise naturally begin? If your answer to this question is an honest, well... Not much. I would understand that. Because we are living in an age where we so often are struggling to discern what really constitutes greatness at all. All day long, all week long, we're being subjected to these images, these icons of alleged greatness, aren't we? If you've been following the World Cup recently, you know that Tim Howard of the U.S. soccer team is the one we're now saying is truly great. And I'm a fan. But I also know that by next week, or the week after, there's going to be some other star in our sky, right? Someone else now who is the new standard of greatness in our imagination. We will go about through the course of these months ahead and we will encounter friends who will tell us that as far as they're concerned, we have to go and see that particular movie. Why? Because it's truly what? Great. Yeah, you've got to see that movie. It's it's really great. Some fast food chain is going to come out. You just wait. They'll be coming out shortly with an even larger and juicier and more caloric burger than before. And we're all going to be told we've got to go to that restaurant. We've just got to get one of those because it's mouth-wateringly what? Great, great. We'll buy the next tech device. In a few months' time, we'll be in line. We'll be prepared to shell out hundreds of dollars, many of us. Because that company that Steve Jobs founded or, or that Google runs is coming out now with something that is insanely great. We may even come to accept the idea that we are personally great. As as increasingly studies are demonstrating, uh, Americans are thinking about themselves in such terms. I came across a um, research study. It's called the American Freshman Survey. It's a survey that's been done for 42 years. And they ask freshmen college freshmen, all kinds of questions about their attitudes and orientations in life. And what the most recent study has found is that this year's, this past year's uh, group of college freshmen 
rank themselves as gifted at a much higher proportion than any previous generation. Which is very good news for us because we need all the gifts we can get to help us with the challenges of our world. We're not the first people to be a bit fuzzy or confused perhaps on the definition of greatness. Some of you will recall from your own college history lessons perhaps. Uh, Louis Fourteenth of France, the great monarch who uh, said, L'état c'est moi, I am the state, preferred to be called Louis the what? The great. That was his preferred title. And, and you can understand why he might have thought of himself in those particular terms. He was certainly the best-known celebrity in his time. His court was the most lavish of any of the courts in all of uh, Europe at this particular moment. If, he, if, he, if they had had them in that particular time, Louis would have had his own reality show, right? It would have been a very interesting show, great costuming, fabulous um, sets and surroundings. But to dramatize his greatness, Louis even planned to have himself commemorated at the point of death in a way that would just demonstrate how awesome he truly was. And so he left very specific instructions about his funeral. He instructed that the cathedral in which he was to be laid in state was to be very dimly lit. They were to put very few candles around the the great nave of the cathedral. His casket was to be placed up at the front. It was, by the way, a solid gold casket. And right above the casket was to be located a particularly large candle. Clearly the brightest one in the entire environment. And it would just make the casket glisten as the focal point of everything. And thousands of people thronged the cathedral. And they waited for it. The service to begin in rapt silence when all of a sudden Bishop Massillon stood up and came forward in front of the, just behind the casket and, and, and then did something that was not in Louis' script. Bishop Massillon wet his fingers, snuffed out the candle, and said, Only God is great. Only God is great in the fullest sense of that word. And that is the truth that we gather around here today. Amidst all of the lesser images of greatness, amidst all of the counterfeit notions of greatness, amidst all of the dim reflections of that most glorious light who is the ultimate source of even our brightest stars, we come to this place to catch a glimpse of the greatness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. I just love the way St. Paul puts it in the Corinthian letter. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has chosen to give us the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ.
It is as we draw close to the person of Jesus, look deeply into the face of Jesus, that we come to fully see, as much as we can in this life, the greatness of our God. It must be said, however, that when meeting Jesus, there is always this risk that we will still miss the reality of who God truly is. How many of you are familiar with the name Andrew Greeley, a great Chicagoan, a great Catholic priest, a marvelous novel writer? And at one point, Greeley said this, much of the history of Christianity has been devoted to domesticating Jesus, to reducing that elusive, enigmatic, paradoxical person to dimensions that we can comprehend, understand, and convert to our own purposes. In other words, there's always this danger, even for we who come to to cathedrals. (laughs) There's always this danger that Jesus will become for us just another character in the religious movie. He'll be for us just another celebrity on the magazine cover. Jesus will be just another mere role model, just another icon of a certain human-sized sense of greatness. And we'll hear ourselves sometimes talking this way or others speaking this way. We'll speak as if it's nice to know that we've got Jesus as our friend. It's wonderful that we've got Jesus on call. It's fabulous that Jesus is there to help us in our moments of confusion or trouble or when we need advice or we need to have our particular point of view affirmed. But Jesus is so much more than this. The psalmist says, His greatness, no one can fathom. His greatness, no one can fully fathom. Renowned pastor Tim Keller tells of a moment when as a young man attending a Sunday school class, this became clear to him in a way it had not before through the teaching and the illustration given to him by a Sunday school teacher. The teacher said, let's just assume that the distance between the earth and the sun, which by the way is 92 million miles, 92 million miles, just assume that that distance was reduced to the thickness of a piece of paper. Are you with me? You can see the piece of paper. Let's just assume it's reduced to that thickness. Now using that basic scale, The distance between the earth and the nearest other star beyond our sun would be a stack of papers 70 feet high just to the next star. And the diameter of our galaxy, the diameter of this cloud of stars in which we are moving through the universe would be a stack of those papers 310 miles high. And then, Keller's teacher adds, remember that our galaxy is just a speck of dust in the universe in which we live and move and have our being. And yet, Jesus holds that entire universe together by his power. He created it. He sustains it. 
He could have on the cross with a single blink of an eye undone it all. Jesus holds it all within his power. Finally, the teacher asked her students, Now, is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? Is he? His greatness, no one can fathom. Thomas Aquinas also caught a glimpse of this. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the work of Thomas Aquinas. He's widely considered one of the greatest intellects ever to travel across the surface of our earth. Crowning achievement for Aquinas was a, an extraordinary work of intellect called his uh, Summa Theologica. It is a collection of of 38 treatises, 3,000 articles, some 10,000 arguments. It, 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 is, it, is, it was the Wikipedia of its day. It brought together all known knowledge uh, about anthropology and science and ethics and psychology and political theory and theology, and he tied them all together in an integrated, cohesive way, an understanding of all truth, but on December the 6th, 1273, Thomas Aquinas stopped his work on this. His, his pen just came off the page. And those around him wondered why he had stopped. And his secretary, Reginald, said to him, Master, when are we starting again? And Aquinas answered, never. And, and Reginald asked why. And Thomas said that while participating in a communion service in the chapel of St. Thomas, he had caught a glimpse of eternity. He had seen it of eternity. And like that college girl who, who, who eventually grasped how much further out the stars were than she had previously understood, Aquinas suddenly knew that all of his efforts to describe God fell so far short of anything he could ever get his arms around that he decided he would never write again. And when his secretary, Reginald, tried to encourage him to go back at it, this is what he said, Reginald, I can do no more. Such things have been revealed to me that all I have written now seems as so much straw. And the pen of one of the greatest minds in human history remained silenced before the greatness of God until about a year later. Thomas Aquinas passed into the great mystery, the great majesty of the greatness of God. I ask you again, do any of us really understand what we mean when we use that word, great? Do we begin to understand the glorious wonder of the greatness of God that meets us 
even today, in the face of Jesus. What gets to me sometimes, what ambushes me when we're singing the songs, what I feel sometimes as I'm gathering around the communion table, as I'm moving through this amazing creation, is what goodness resides within that greatness. Does that ever get to you? Does that ever reach you? Joel Belts describes his own experience of this in terms of a reality that came home to him one day through a simple sentence that he read in the Wall Street Journal. It was an editorial in the journal, and he writes, it's been half a decade since I read it, but it was one of those electric expressions that I just can't get out of my mind. People want to be lightly governed by strong governments. That was the sentence. People want to be lightly governed by strong governments. That's what you've wanted since you were a child, contends Belts. You wanted your dad to be big and strong and able to do anything you could think of, except that when he dealt with you, it had to be with gentleness and tenderness. You wanted a policeman out on the corner who was tough enough to handle any neighborhood bully or worse, but who would also hoist you on his shoulders and help you find your parents when you got lost in the crowd. What you wanted was lots of muscle coupled with lots of restraint. And that's an innate yearning in us, says Belts. It's this, this yearning within us for that rare combination. When evil people rise up, we want a government that's got the clout to back them down, yet we never want that clout turned on us. In the final analysis, writes Belts, people want to be lightly governed by strong governments because that is exactly how God governs us. And all we need to do is Look into the face of Jesus to see that particular brand of greatness. This is why I'm drawn to him. I love the way the psalmist puts it. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and rich in love. Remember, God's greatness no one can fathom. And yet... The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. The Lord is trustworthy in all of his promises. He's faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. And this, I think, is why we are drawn to Jesus. He has the power to make the wind and the waves obey him. And yet he also has the passion to welcome little children to his knee. He has the might to bring down evil and the munificence to lift the sinful and broken up. He has the capacity to conquer sin and death, but also the compassion to shed his life's blood on the cross that we might be forgiven of our sins. 
I follow and worship Jesus because he makes it as clear as a starry night that God is both great and good. There's a scene in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia that makes this point well, and with it, I would like to close. The young heroine, Lucy, is reunited with the majestic lion, Aslan, who is the Christ figure in the stories. Lucy rushes to Aslan. She sees him coming towards her, and she rushes towards him. She throws her arms around his neck, and she buries his, her face in his mane. And the great beast, Lewis says, rolled onto his side. As she buried himself, herself in him, he, he rolls down onto his side. So that she falls down between his front paws. Welcome, child, the lion said. And gazing up into his large, wise face, Lucy exclaims in wonder, Aslan... You're bigger. You're bigger than when last I saw you. That's because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are bigger, she asks. I'm not, said Aslan. I am as I ever was. But each year, that you grow, you will find me bigger, greater. I do not know what of him you most especially need today. Perhaps it is his supreme gravity to steady you to stabilize you, to strengthen you, to challenge you. Or maybe it is his sublime grace you most need to comfort you, to repair you, to refresh you, to encourage you. Either way, I pray that you have grown old enough to see that he is big enough for all of this. The God who meets you at this table is greatly good. He is greatly good. And what he has to offer you as you come in humbled awe before him is everything that you need. Please pray with me. God, you are great. God, you are good. And as we come to this table, we humbly, reverently thank you for our food. Amen.